So this morning we're continuing on through the book of Matthew and we're talking about restoration. This profound thing that Jesus restores us and through us he restores the world. And so we're going to continue on and we're looking at Matthew 16 this morning. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 12. Matthew 16, 5 to 12. So remember, um, Jesus has been teaching, he's fed a crowd, and he's been going back and forth with the religious leaders. So when they, that is the disciples and Jesus, went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Um, To kick off our sermon, I have a brief video. Brittany, if you could cue that up for us. Folks needn't always be serious. Thanks to the inventive minds of two Sheffield engineers, the safety scoop has arrived. It can be fitted to bumpers or take the place of them. And it folds neatly away when it isn't eating pedestrians. The inventors are confident enough to demonstrate it themselves. A flick of a lever and the scoop has another mouthful. When the scoop is open, a jaywalker simply can't get run over. And sometimes that's more than he deserves. I bet you're wondering where I'm going. (laughs) All right. So this this thing is called a cow catcher or a car catcher. I like that name better. So this is a bizarre invention. It showed up in the 1930s. And as you can see, the idea is that if you're driving along and a pedestrian ends up in your way and you can't hit your brakes quick enough to stop them, you can pull this lever And it drops down this thing with like rollers on it and rolls and unfolds and gently catches your pedestrian. It's a great idea, right? It makes it makes sense to me. Um, And yet, for some reason, this idea didn't take off. I don't I don't have a cow catcher on my car Um, because it turns out that you're more likely to roll over said pedestrian and squish them even more than had you just hit them. Um, apparently the, the crash testing did not go well on this invention. Why was this thing made? Was there like a, an abundance of pedestrians wandering the streets in the 1930s? Or what's happening? The, the reality is that safety equipment is a huge market. 
It's a huge market because survival is a basic human instinct, right? We are bent towards self-preservation, towards avoiding any kind of risk, towards fixing the potential for any kind of problem. I don't want to hit a pedestrian, so certainly I should put a parachute on the front of my car. Humans go to great lengths to preserve ourselves, to obtain some sense of control over our own mortality or our own existence in this world. And this is a good instinct. You know, on some days that instinct to stay alive is what keeps us alive. And yet, not unlike our car catcher, so often our human attempts to mitigate risk or to control actually end up creating more problems and don't solve the initial risk to begin with. Now, this instinct to eliminate risk, to be ahead of a problem, is fresh in the disciples' minds in our text for this morning. See, Jesus had just gotten into yet another skirmish with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They've been going rounds. Despite everything that Jesus was doing, so, I mean, he's been feeding masses, he's been healing the sick, he's been delivering people from demons, he's blowing people away with signs and wonders, And yet the Pharisees and Sadducees come to him and they say, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, can you give us a sign? And in response, Jesus calls the ruling leaders and authorities of the day in front of this whole crowd, he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Now I can imagine that things are a little awkward. (laughs) The crowd's probably a little stirred up. Your Pharisees are probably a little upset. And it's probably time to go, right? The day day is done. And so it's no wonder that our likely flustered disciples forgot to pack the cooler before they got on the boat. It's time to go. Nobody likes to be on a boat without snacks, right? (laughs) It's important. And certainly not without bread. If that boat has essentially become your RV that you're traveling around on a preaching tour with. The situation is even more dire when we consider that every time Jesus beaches that boat, thousands show up and they don't leave. And they come with their hungry children and they expect to be fed. And so here they are, Jesus and his disciples floating on the sea and they don't have bread. And Jesus says something really strange. Be careful, he says. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Hmm. (laughs) Come again, Jesus, they must have thought. The disciples hymn-haw, and they whisper together, apart from Jesus somehow, and they're trying to figure out what their rabbi's saying, right? Like Jesus always has something he's up to. They just don't know what it is. I got it, says one. This is because we forgot to pack the bread, isn't it? That's what Jesus is referring to. Now, I imagine that there were probably some some slow nods and some knitting of eyebrows around the 12. Is that really what this is about? Jesus overhears their confusion and he comes to their rescue and he says, You have little faith. Why are you talking about bread? Don't you get it yet? 
Do you not remember that we fed thousands of people with a handful of food and you had leftovers? How can you think that this is about bread? Be on your guard, he says it again, against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And just like that, it clicked. Jesus wasn't upset that they'd forgotten bread. He was warning them against the yeast or the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now the text says that the disciples understood it at this moment, but I've got to admit that I'm still confused. <laughs> what is the teaching? Like what, what comprises that yeast that Jesus is warning about? And so let's dig into it. I know we've got some bread bakers in the crowd. Yes, we've got a few bread bakers in the crowd, so you'll have to forgive me my ignorance. I am not a a bread baker, but I did some research. So I know enough to be dangerous with bread. Now, yeast is what causes bread to rise, yes? Heat causes it to bubble up, and that's what gives us that puffy, airy texture that we love in bread, right? Once yeast is added, you're not going to get it back out. It, it, It goes inside. And once yeast encounters heat, it's going to bubble and puff and change the shape and the structure of your loaf of bread. Now in scripture, yeast, another word for it is leaven. Leaven is used in other places as a metaphor for sin. So you think about how one little bit of sin gets into our lives and our hearts and it needs its way through and it bubbles up and it changes the shape of us, right? It's a great metaphor for sin, And yet, somewhere, somehow, Jesus also says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast or leaven. A wise mentor of mine likes to say that leavens are influences on your mind. Almost like ways of thinking or lenses through which we view things. And he says that there are three leavens. Now, the first one we're going to talk about is this leaven of the Pharisee. So, Jesus is saying, be on guard against the way of thinking or the influence of mind that influences the Pharisees. Are you with me on this? So Pharisees, like the word Pharisee, means to be separate, set apart. Now scholars estimate that there were about 6,000 of them in Jesus' day. So when we imagine those encounters with Pharisees while Jesus is teaching, it's probably more than one or two. Like there's bunches of them. They're everywhere. They separated themselves from the common people, thought of themselves as like echelon here. They loved money, and they were religious zealots, like radical to the law. And much like that car catcher invention, in a desperate attempt to keep themselves set apart, to keep themselves obedient to the law, they made additional laws, or like hedges, to keep themselves from breaking the law. So instead of just honor the Sabbath, they had like 39 laws about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, making the fences. So there's upwards of 30 laws about the Sabbath. They make all these laws. And this yeast of Pharisees is an influence on the mind to keep law well, but not to pursue relationship with God. It's an influence to separate oneself from the people that God loves and the work that he actually calls his people to. The yeast of Pharisees produces control or a desire to control over oneself 
rather than a surrender to God. It's void of the presence and power of God, and it's marked by pride and hypocrisy. So that's one way of thinking. Separate ourselves, follow the rules, and we don't actually need to be connected to God in order to succeed. The second yeast is that of the Sadducees. Sadducees were wealthy landowners, and they worked in cooperation with the Roman government to maintain their money and their power. Interestingly, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had very different theological viewpoints, and yet they were willing to compromise those things to come together in oppression of Jesus. Sadducees were accused by Jesus of being ignorant of the scriptures and the power of God because they sort of wrote their own interpretation to meet their own needs of what God was asking of his people. So this is a worldview or a way of thinking that clings to money, to earthly connections and relationships, and power above true conviction. It too is marked by pride and hypocrisy. So you've got two groups claiming to be God's people, they're Jews, both with great money and great power and great influence, and yet neither of these groups of people are reporting miracles. Pharisees aren't producing bread out of nowhere. They're not healing people of diseases. They're not setting people free. They're just building their own kingdoms and expecting everyone else to come along and bow. And they've done everything that they can to avoid any kind of risk as they sit under the oppression of the Roman government. And the rub here is that when God's people avoid risk, we end up avoiding God's supernatural provision and presence. And so, no, we're not just talking about bread. Think about it. So you've got disciples that are concerned about not packing bread after they saw Jesus create bread out of thin air. It makes no sense. Despite everything that they've seen and heard, somehow they're still thinking along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Give me another sign, Jesus. It's almost like without knowing it, their attempt to be good disciples and to eliminate problems, in doing that, they're actually robbing Jesus of an opportunity to show up and be glorified. They're behaving as if they don't know who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's capable of doing. Beware, friends, the yeast and the Sadducees of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And we said already that yeast is activated by heat. Heat is what causes it to bubble and go to work. And so the question that I believe is posed to us this morning is this. What bubbles up in you and I when the heat of circumstances and hardship comes? What's bubbling? How are we being influenced to think? When life gets busy and stressful, when finances are tight, when our health is compromised, when relationships are strained, when the future seems uncertain, when we've messed up really big, when we're making big decisions, is our first instinct to strive to undo risk? Are we, are we gunning to control? Do we pick the safest option that we know of in the moment? Do we go with the one that we can afford? Do we follow the rules to a T and pray that somehow things turn around? 
Do we call in favors or do we put faith in our own understanding or the ones that we put our votes behind? Do we look out for ourselves and our own preservation in those moments? Do we forget who Jesus is and what he's done or are we taking time to ask him what he'd like to do? Are we motivated by our own preservation or glory? Or are we looking for ways for our God to provide and to be glorified? When we remember who he is, when we remember the things that he's done, not just in scripture, but in our own lives, and when we have faith in the profound things that he can do, this is evidence of the third leaven. Remember I said there were three? This is the third one. The third is the leaven of the kingdom of God, the mindset of our king, and the rules of his kingdom. Jesus says that it too works its way through the dough of our minds and our hearts and our lives, and it gives new shape to us and to our lives. It fills us with breath, right? Like um, yeast produces oxygen, it's air. The yeast of the kingdom reminds us that even when we've messed up, our righteousness was purchased, not by our perfection, but by Jesus' blood on the cross. It keeps us from shame helps us to walk in grace. The yeast of the kingdom reminds us that Jesus provided enough bread to feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And you know what? He can provide for us too. The yeast of the kingdom reminds us that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. And he causes the kings of the earth to rise and fall, that he set the moon and the stars in their course. He heals diseases and he sets captives free and he is not limited by humanity or the the things of this earth. As I worked through this text, it occurred to me that in some ways we seem to be almost on a parallel journey to the disciples in Matthew. We're learning what it means to sort of put on those kingdom lenses, to be shaped to think, renewed, restored to think like our king. But the problem here is that just like the disciples, there is great risk to going back. There's great risk to going back to thinking with stuck, um, legal, fruitless religion. Like I'm going to follow the rules rather than pursue a relationship with God. Or I'm going to cling to finances or politics or secular influence, whatever it might be, rather than... God and what he's doing and what he wants to do. And the reality here is, is that Jesus offered his disciples and us something so much better. Scripture tells us that God actually delights in providing for us. It says his joy is complete when he's answering faith-filled prayers. God's not held back by human limitation. And as we, like, continue to cooperate with And surrender to him, he gets to show up in those opportunities where we leave space for him. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not, I am not advocating for, um, you know, complete irresponsibility. I am not telling you to not pay your bills and ask Jesus to take care of it or whatever it might be. But what I'm saying is, as you give yourselves to God, when you come into places of need or places of conflict even, 
These are places to give to God and ask him to move. And we've heard testimony time and time again from this very spot of him showing up in those places. This week, I heard from one of you that you had pledged an amount to our building fund that exceeded mathematical mathematical sense. So you felt like the Lord asked you to give more than what would make financial sense. And within a week, the Lord mysteriously provided half of that money back to you. Amen? Yes, people, we are different. We are the people of God. And we get to look at the world the way that he does and say, man, there's a problem that Jesus died to fix. What are we going to do about it? Oh, he's so good. Now, I have to confess that I don't do this well yet. Like, this was really convicting for me. I am, I am a, I suppose you could call like a chronic problem solver. Like, I, <laughs> I like to fix things. I like to plan ahead, right? Um, and yet I think that God is inviting each one of us. What is the problem right now and what do you need from me? Because I want to show up for you, my people. I want to blow you away. I want to give you more than you dared to ask yesterday because I'm going to build your faith today as you ask me and trust me. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and get settled. But before we sing our song, I just want to make space. We're just going to sit with the Lord. And I think the question is, um, whatever situation you've got in which you need a solution I want you to bring that to the Lord in your mind's eye and ask him how he views it or how he would have you look at it and what you might ask of him. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's pray. God, what an invitation. Lord, you're inviting us to... um, be loved and provided for in ways that few of us know. And so, Lord, I ask that you would expand our hearts to receive you right now, that you would build faith in us to ask hard things and to trust what you say in response. And, Lord, as we sang earlier, I ask that you would open up the heavens and open up our eyes and ears. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with each one of us in our place of need this morning?